Well, I know that these last couple of sermons have been pretty hard-hitting. I know that because I was looking at them, looking at all those texts, and I was right here when they were preached, and I saw all of your faces, and some of us have even joked about that a little bit. Um, You know, a few weeks ago, walking through the book of James, uh, it convicted us that if our faith isn't shown in our works, then our faith isn't real, and that hit hard for some of us. And then later it went on to show that if our words are coming out of us to hurt people, that's showing that what's inside of us isn't good. And then after that, if our, if our deeds in the community are sowing conflict and there's conflict and drama all around us, it's probably because there's bad things within us and maybe even a bad and evil wisdom within us. That hit hard as well. And I have sensed the tension building up over these last couple of weeks, and I know that some of you have as well. And some of you are sitting here right now thinking, oh man, is he going to punch me in the nose again? Right? And the answer is, yes, I am. But here's the thing. All of that tension from the last couple weeks has been building up to this text. The one that I think hits the hardest, the one that is hardest to stare in the eyes, but at the same time, the one that resolves all the tension from prior weeks. So if you've had a hard time with these last couple of sermons, if they have been showing you that there are just either areas you need to work on in your Christian faith, or that maybe the Lord's revealing to you that you weren't following Jesus wholeheartedly in the first place, I want you to know that this word I think is a special word for you and the word the Lord might use to put you back into the right. Now before I start that though, let me clarify one thing. There are two ways that you might feel conviction about what's going on here. On one hand, The book of James was written to sand off all of our rough edges and complete our faith, right? I've said that many times. You're probably used to me saying that, probably tired of me saying that. And that's what it's doing for a lot of us, right? We we hear about words, we hear about works and things like that. Most of us think, oh, I I still need to work on that, right? And the Lord is sanding off that rough edge and making us a little bit more pure through that. On the other hand, for some of us, when we hear a convicting word like this, we're looking at our lives and saying, I'm not sure if I'm really following Jesus in the first place, right? So there's a difference between, hey, I could follow Jesus better, and ooh, this is revealing to me that maybe I don't love Jesus as much as I thought I did. Maybe I'm some kind of half-hearted, halfway Christian or something like that. And I just want to be really clear from the beginning that if you're in the first group, the really hard stuff in this text isn't meant directly for you, but if you're in the second group, if you're in the group that's doubting the genuineness of your faith because of what we've been reading lately, The second half of this message is for you. So listen for it, hear it, and may the Lord speak to you powerfully through it. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to James chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, grab the Dark Pew Bible in front of you. Start at the back and flip to page 178, which is where you'll find it. We're going to read James 4, chapter uh, verse 1 through 10. James writes, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, and so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, and so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it said, God is, the, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Amen. So one common theme you have probably noticed in the book of James so far is that what is inside of a person comes out of a person, right? You probably remember me saying that many times over the last few weeks. Jesus compares that to fruit on a tree, right? You know it's an apple tree because it gives forth apples. Uh, and that's the theme that James has been hitting on, giving us several different pictures of that for the last few paragraphs in James. And what he's going to do here is he's going to give one more picture of how that looks, one more picture of in real life when something bad in a person is coming out in their words or actions. And then he's going to tell us how God feels about that. And then after that, he's going to tell us what to do about it and show us how to get right with the Lord again. So before we get into that, I just want to give you one picture of what this can be like, what it can look like when something that's inside of something comes out of something. Have you ever smelled rotten potatoes before? Yeah, it's not pleasant, is it? No, like they turn this blackish brown like color in the bottom of the cabinet and you got to go wipe that out. It's so gross. Well, one time, I think when Emily was pregnant, we had some potatoes go bad. And at first we were just smelling this terrible smell and we couldn't figure out what it was. And then one day one of us opened the cupboards and found like that sludge from those rotten potatoes. And, you know, she was, she was pregnant at the time, so she wasn't going to be going near that. She smelled it before I did. And so I get in there, and I'm, we're cleaning it out. And, and uh, I separated the good, there's still some good potatoes in there, separated the good ones from the bad ones. I figured we better eat the good ones now. Uh, so put the bad ones in the trash can, take the trash out so all that's gone, clean it up. Now we'll cook the good ones, right, so that they don't go bad either. I thought this was a great plan. I don't see what could go wrong. Well, little did I know that a potato can look like a healthy raw potato and not be a healthy raw potato. It can have perfect skin all the way around, not be shriveled at all, but inside is just nasty darkness. And so I get that scrub brush out and I scrub one potato real good under the faucet, set it over there, there's one, and I scrub the second one, and finally I get to this one that is just like a grenade ready to go off in my hands, right? And I squeeze it real good and I apply some pressure with that brush and boom, right? Oh, all down my fingers, like between my fingers, down my hand. The grossest sludge I can't think I've ever smelled just all over me. Now, why was that what came out of the potato? Well, because that's what was inside of the potato. And even if the skin looks good, sometimes what's on the inside comes out. Well, James has been saying that many different ways about our lives. Sometimes the way that we act reveals the state of our hearts. And he's going to do that one last time here. He'll give one more picture of that, and then he'll talk about the other things that we were talking about. So let's look at the very first one then. James's audience was first century Jewish Christians, and they at one point were probably all meeting together in Jerusalem. 
but some persecution broke out, and so they're scattered all over the place. Uh, we think he was probably their pastor, and so he's writing to them as like his former flock that's scattered all over the place. Now, that's why the beginning uh, says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, the 12 tribes of Israel that are scattered now among all of the nations. So they're part of churches in the cities that they're living in now all over the place, and evidently there was some quarreling and fighting going on in some of these churches. And we know that because James asks them very directly, what is the source of the quarrels and the fights that are among you, right? So he's referring to them like they're there, like they're happening. So we know they're there, right? And what he says is they're fighting on the outside because of what's on the inside, right? He says, uh, what is the source of the fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, and so you fight and you quarrel. So they're fighting on the outside because on the inside they're, they're not getting what they want, right? And that tends to be how it goes, isn't it? Why, why do you fight with your spouse sometimes? Well, one of us wants one thing, one of us wants the other thing. That's pretty much what it comes Why do our kids fight? Same kind of thing. One of the troubles with these bodies that we dwell in here is that our bodies tend to want things that are not very good for us, right? Have you ever noticed that every good-tasting food out there, it seems like, is bad for you? I think that has something to do with the fact that when you indulge in something that's not good for you, you wind up craving more and more and more of it. But it's not just food. Our bodies have this hunger to be satisfied in so many ways, to have our pride satisfied by success and by people speaking well of us, to get our ways in the groups that we're a part of. Our bodies have cravings for sex, and if they aren't satisfied, sometimes we do some very nasty things about that. The reason we act the way we do oftentimes is because of the desires that are in our hearts. And when you get what you want, I mean, I probably don't have to tell you what that feeling is like. You eat a really good piece of cake or something, and it's like, mmm, like, you know what that feels like, right? And then if you don't get what you want, well, that can be difficult, and that can lead to some pretty nasty stuff. So here's how this looked like in my house this week. Emily made this amazing lemon blueberry cream cheese cake for our son. It was incredible and beautiful. And so all week, we've been cutting up this thing and putting it on the table, and everybody's eating it. And when we break that thing out, like, it's silence. Like, all you hear is forks and plates, like, clanking, and people going, mmm, mmm, right? Because you know what it's like to eat a really good piece of cake. Well, problem is, what happens, we're not here yet, but what happens when we're down to one piece of cake? Mmm, it's going to be a problem, isn't it? What happens when we're down to one piece of cake and I take that piece and I put it in front of our four kids, the oldest of whom is eight, and I say, okay guys, figure it out. Oh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's gonna be words, there's gonna be tears, there's, it doesn't matter how good your kids are, you put that in front of them and they are gonna find a way to fight about it. Why? Well, because each one is in the way of what the other wants and when that happens, we start fighting. Well, adults aren't any different from kids in that way, right? This happens even in nations and in things we talk about all the time. The United States and China are in a tariff war right now. Why? Because neither of us is getting what we want when it comes to trade. Uh, people are arguing about the Kentucky Derby. Why are we arguing about the Kentucky Derby? We don't like how it happened, and so we're going to argue about it. We're going to fight about it. And James says here that churches do the same thing. When churches fight, it tends to be because one of us isn't getting what we want, or somebody's in the way of what somebody else wants. 
So he says the source is the passions that are at war within us. We wind up shooting words like arrows at each other. Why? Because the other person has what we want, right? And so it's, did you hear that? You know, we just go for it every time. Or, or, well, what I think about this is just launching arrows right at people, trying to destroy people with our tongues, with our words. Why? Because we're fighting. Why are we fighting? Because someone is in the way of what we want. And so James says, you lust and you don't have and so you commit murder. Right? I don't think he means literal murder. He would have really focused on that. I think he means like murder by words, like you try to hurt people with your words. You're envious and you cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. Our fights come from the passionate desires that are within our hearts. Now, on the other hand, what are we supposed to want? It's not cake, right? No, what are we supposed to want? We're supposed to be praying, Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're supposed to want his commission sounding forth throughout all the earth to make and train and send disciples of Jesus all over this globe. We're supposed to long for his great commandments to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and then to love our neighbor as ourselves. Those are the things we're supposed to be longing for, right? And he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, right? So those desires, the things that God wants for us, his will here on earth, those ought to trump all of our cravings for food and for sex and for power and position and preferences. But we get off track a lot, don't we? We wind up wanting other things, and oftentimes that leads to either sin or bad conduct in the community. A lot of times it leads to fighting right there in the church. Now, it's kind of an aside here. One of the things that James says is an effect of that. If you get off track and you start not wanting the things that God wants, well, probably you're going to stop praying, right? Why would you stop praying? Well, part of you knows that what you're asking for isn't really what God wants for you, so you're going to stop asking for it. Or maybe you've deceived yourself and you're asking for the stuff, and the Lord says, hey, I'm here to build my kingdom through you, not to build your kingdom. And so we ask and we don't receive what we ask for. And so James says very clearly in verse 3, you do not have because you do not ask. Or you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. So one way you can try to tell if you're living according to the pleasures of the world and the pleasures of your own body is it can lead to either a prayerlessness that you can't really explain because you might not know what to ask for, or it can lead to asking for all the wrong things and not getting them. So that's, that's James's last picture of what that looks like when something bad in us comes out of us. Uh, that's his picture of what it looked like in the first century. I'll give you a picture, though, of what it looks like today. Um, you guys probably know a lot of you that we are part of a convention called the Southern Baptist Convention. It is an alliance of churches that works together to do mission work and to help the poor and to, to do all sorts of very good things. Uh, one of the things that the officials in the SBC do is they go and consult with churches that are really struggling. So if you're in a financial wreck of a situation, there are people you can call who do this all the time and can come and help. And one of those groups helps churches that are fighting to patch things up and to get along again, right? So there are many groups that do that. One of them is led by a guy named Tom Rayner, who some of you know, he was the president of Lifeway until recently when he retired. Uh, so he's got access to 
all of our numbers that we report about who came and what and how much giving was and all, he's got access to, to all that in the big picture. And he's got his experience of going into church after church after church to patch up conflict. And he made a top five list of the things that churches are fighting about in the SBC. And it's fascinating. I probably don't have to tell you that they aren't matters of substance and they aren't things that are close to God's heart. You know what the very first one is? The thing that we fight about the most? The time of the worship service had changed. (laughs) Our best research says that what we fight about the most is the time of our worship service. Number two is a matter of substance. It's what to do when a pastor has a moral failing. Now, it's very clear in the Bible what to do, but churches often wind up fighting because there are hurt feelings and things like that when someone that you love and trust has a moral failing. Uh, That one, in my mind, might be the most understandable and there might be the most amount of godliness in that. Number three is the length of the worship services, not to be confused with the time of the worship services before, Number four is just general power struggles, people vying to be in charge, who's in charge around here. And number five is the style of the worship services. Not to be confused with the length of the worship services or the time of the worship services. Those are the things that Southern Baptist churches are fighting about. Now what does that tell us? It tells us that, this isn't true of all of us, but when we fight, when churches fight, it tends to reveal that what we're passionate about is the wrong stuff right? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength so much that you would die for him. And there are churches out there that are saying, we love 1030 worship so much, we would kill for it. Can you see the corruption that's going on, the difference between the two? So what it's revealing is that we want the wrong thing. That's what tends to be happening when churches fight. So all these things that he's talked about have been pointing to divided hearts, to to kind of Christians, right? And and I'll walk through it again, even though I've walked through it once. Uh, At this point, hopefully someone who doesn't follow Jesus fully and completely sees it as they're reading through the book of James. I think that's his goal for this point. Uh, He said in chapter 2 that if you're judging people with partiality, It's because you don't get the gospel that saved you without partiality. That's going to convict a person like that who's not fully following Jesus and has that sense of superiority. He says if your works don't verify your faith, your faith isn't real, right? Then he says that if your words are venomous, it's because your heart is venomous. These are all the paragraphs that lead up to this one that we've been preaching on lately. Uh, And then he says that if your wisdom leads the groups that you're in to chaos and to drama, you're probably drawing on a really bad source of wisdom and not the Lord's system. And now he says that if your church is fighting, it reveals that you love things of the world more than you love Jesus. So all of those things are pointing to divided hearts, right? A heart that loves Jesus but loves other stuff that it's not willing to let go of. But Jesus wants their whole hearts, right? He wants us to seek him with all that we've got. He doesn't want our love mixed between things that he opposes and things that he loves. To him, that's like having a wife that still has a thing for her ex-boyfriend. He is not 
okay with that when his church does that. And in fact, in many places, the Bible refers to the people of God as his bride and refers to Jesus himself as the bridegroom of the people of Christ. So it's really fitting to think of it in those terms as a, as a wayward fiance who has drifted from her husband and fallen back into things with her ex-boyfriend because she's still giving her heart to him and she still loves him. Now with that in mind, that behind the scenes, that's what's going on and that's how the Lord looks at it. Let's look at verse 4, and I think though the words sound harsh, they'll make more sense. Verse 4 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. So I want you to know as clearly as I can say it, if these last several weeks have pointed out to you that your heart doesn't fully belong to Jesus, that you kind of follow him and kind of chase after other worldly pleasures, I want you to know as much as I love you, I have to say it, those words are for you. That is the jealousy that we can incite in our God when we divide our hearts between him and the pleasures of this world. Now, to understand the words better, you need to know that in the Bible, the concept of a friend is very close and very intimate. Friends in the Bible are very rare. They share all their possessions. They knit their souls together. The only really good model of friendship that I can think of in the Bible is David and Jonathan, right? And they have each other's backs all the time. And it even says that the bond between them was stronger than the bond between a man and a woman, right? So this is not like Facebook friends with the world. This is like chasing after the things of the world, an inseparable bond with the pleasures of the world that you're not willing to give up. And the Lord says if we're seeking that, that's adultery against God because he wants us to seek him fully and wholeheartedly. Now what the words say about God is that he's jealous. And I want to tell you that that's a good thing. If you're a divided Christian, I want you to know that your God yearns jealously for you, and he wants you back. He will walk into a house with fire and zeal in his eyes and cause a scene to get you back because he wants all of you, because he loves you that much. Now, I know that's scary. If you tried to imagine the fire in Jesus' eyes when he yearns zealously over his people and we haven't been faithful to him, that's a scary picture, I know. But I want to tell you that it's a good thing, and here's how I'll tell you that. Imagine, again, that scene of the wayward fiancé who has turned away now from her ex-boyfriend and is coming back to her fiancé to reconcile. And she sits on a couch with him and tells him everything that she has done, and she's, she's cut it off now, it's over with, uh, but she's confessing her sin to him. Now, the jealousy in his eyes is going to be scary. I think we know that. A jealous husband's a scary thing. But imagine if instead he said, uh, I've been looking for a way to get out of this anyway. You can just stay with him if you, if you want to. It's not going to hurt me. That would be worse. Does he even love her? If he's just willing to let her walk out for somebody else? No. No, that jealous fire in Jesus' eyes, that is what love looks like. Your Savior wants you back if you have walked away from him, and you don't want it any other way. He burns with a jealousy for you that wants him, wants you all to himself. 
So would you want to come to that couch? Would you want to sit down with your Savior and say, I have done wrong. I have sought after the things of the world, and I want to seek after you fully. If there was a way, would you want to come do it? And I ask that because the last half of this text, the last five verses, tell us exactly what that way is. It tells you exactly what to do, how to get there, how to talk to him, how to approach it. And if we look right at it and you desperately want to know what to do, it is going to give you the answer. So let's look at verse 6. It says, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. I'm going to walk through all those steps now, and after this sermon, we'll have a time of silent meditation. If this is hitting you in the heart, you want to know what to do during that time, here here is what to do. First, look at that good news in the beginning of verse 6. He gives a greater grace, right? We sing it, grace that is greater than all of our sins, right? What is it that you have done? Can you, can you pile it all up in your mind and mountain it all up? Well, you've probably missed a few of them, but that's okay because his grace is greater than what you actually have done and everything else in the world. His grace is big enough to forgive all of your sins no matter what you have done. Greater grace than your sins. And secondly, it says God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So come to him humbly. It would be so tempting to come like half-heartedly to this. Like you can imagine the, the fiance that comes back to, to her bridegroom and confesses these things. And she's kind of saying, well, I only really did this much. And if you weren't so, no, this would be easier for me. He's probably not going to receive that, right? No, when, you, when, you've, when you're repenting from sin, you come back humbly because you've got it in your mind, in your heart, just what you have done. So we humble ourselves before the Lord because we know that's how we find grace when we've sinned against him. In verses 6 and 7, it says, Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Uh, This takes imagery from the prophets, where God says all the time to wayward Israel, return to me and I will return to you when you return to me with all of your heart. He's saying, come back to me and I will come back to you as well. Uh, And when he says, draw near to God, and uh, sorry, when he says, submit therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Sorry, my words are getting tied up here. What he means is that you've got to cut yourself off from all of that stuff that you're leaving, right? This fiance who's coming back to her guy, she's going to delete the ex-boyfriend's number in her phone, right? Or it's not genuine. And when that guy calls her and tries to pursue her, she's going to slide the phone across the table to her husband and say, here, honey, why don't you answer it, right? She's cutting herself off from any opportunity to fall again. We have to stand against the devil's work and resist him. You know what it is that's been tempting you this whole time? You know what it is that's pulling you away from the Lord? Cut yourself off from that as a way of standing against the devil and commit yourself fully to God. Next, it says to change your ways and change your heart, right? In the second half of verse 8, it says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That very simply means to just 
don't do the bad things and don't want the bad things, right? Whatever it is that your heart's been chasing after, don't do it anymore and don't want it anymore. And you might be thinking, like, how can, how can I control what I want, right? Like, you're telling me not to want this stuff, but my body just wants this stuff. Like, well, how am I going to do that? Well, it's interesting that the Lord says this here is a command sometimes, but there are other times when God says very clearly that he will purify our hearts. There's, there's like two things going on at the same time. So David can pray on one hand, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And he's asking God to be the one that does that in his heart. So it must be God that's giving you a new heart and purifying your heart. But at the same time, James is telling us to do it, right? Purify your hearts before the Lord. And so there's a, some kind of mysterious cooperative work there where we are asking God to cleanse our hearts. We're asking him to give us new hearts because he promises in Ezekiel that he does give his people new hearts, hearts of flesh, hearts that break for just the right things and long for him wholeheartedly. And at the same time, we have to purify our hearts as well. We have to take action and to do it. And finally, the process is going to have tears and sorrow. Can you imagine the wayward fiance coming back to her husband, reconciling this, confessing it all, and not shedding a single tear? You might suspect that she doesn't mean it, she doesn't really get what she has done. And James says the same thing is true of us when we must come back to the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, repenting of a sin that you see or, you know, asking the Lord for forgiveness for something you just did. I'm talking about a lifestyle that has been adulterous against the Lord by seeking the wrong thing for a greater part of your life. I'm talking about that divided heart that doesn't want him fully. When we've got that and we come back to him, that is something worth weeping over. We have wasted months or years of our lives longing after the wrong thing. That's worth crying about. And so he says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. She used to laugh with her boyfriend, and now she is crying in the arms of her husband. And so it should be with us as well when we return to the Lord. Now, I told you it would be heavy, and it's heavy, and I think probably all of us feel the weight of our sin right now. I certainly feel the weight of mine right now. And whether that's you, you just feel the weight of some sin the Lord's working on in your life, or maybe you are that person with a divided heart who needs to come back and follow Jesus and sit on the couch with him and work that out. Or maybe some of you I lost a long time ago because you never heard the call to follow Jesus in the first place, and so you just lost in the whole thing. Whoever you are, every single one of us need to do the same thing right now. We need to look at the gospel. So if you've got your Bible, flip to 1 Timothy 1, 15. And this is the last thing we're going to do this morning. We're just going to look at this, at what it says. And I just pray the Lord will sink its truth deep into our hearts. First Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. He came into the world, and when he did not deserve to die, he died in our place to secure forgiveness for us. 
and he calls to each and every one of us right now to come and to follow him. Let's pray.